0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element.
0: Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, Lori Burrows, and she's a professor of... Biochemistry, and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University. And in addition, she also authored an article in The Conversation, and it is entitled, Why Canada Hasn't Been Getting the New Antibiotics We Need to Fight Drug-Resistant Superbugs. Now, we've been hearing about superbugs for quite a long time, of course, but uh, Laurie's article points out some interesting things that we should be paying attention to. Just a little bit more about uh, Ms. Burroughs. She is a professor, as I said, and an international expert of bacterial vulnerance factors called type four. Is that what they are?
1: Yes, type four pili.
0: Pili. What is pili?
1: They're actually very cool little kind of Spider Man like filaments that bacteria can shoot out to grab onto
0: things. Wow. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty interesting in itself. Uh, so anyway, going back to a little bit more about you, antibiotic resistance and biofilm formation. Now, there's another term that I would like to ask that you can explain in a moment, but to, just a little bit more here. Particularly, stimulation of the biofilm formulation by sub-inhibitory antibiotic concentrations and exploration of the sublimation phenotype to find new antimicrobials for multi-drug resistant bacteria, so there's a mouthful for us to get around, and why it's important for us to look at these things. Uh, just from uh, what you said there, Laurie, about these things that they can shoot out. I mean, what what does all that stuff mean that I just introduced?
1: <laughs> oh, that, thank you. Well, thank you for having me today, first of all. Mm. And uh, yeah, I love we love to talk about our our. Research. So basically, what we study is how bacteria stick to things, including people Mm. and medical devices like contact lenses, catheters, IV lines, that kind of thing. Because when bacteria grow stuck to things like that, which is what we call a biofilm, Mm. they become more resistant to antibiotics. So one of the things we're trying to understand is how they how they stick to things in the first place and how we might prevent that from happening and then understanding why why they're so much more resistant to antibiotics when they're growing in this big gloopy biofilm. The most mm-hmm. the most famous biofilm in humans is the one on your teeth right now. <laughs> wow. So biofilms are very difficult to get rid of. That's why we right. use our biofilm Removal device a couple times a day, otherwise <laughs> known as your toothbrush.
0: <laughs> right. It's fascinating stuff, though. The more I hear about these these bacteria and how quickly they can adapt and and, you know, how how they manage to stay, you know, one or two steps ahead of us in many ways. It's fascinating stuff, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well there there's a heck of a lot more of them than there are of mm. us and they grow a lot faster than we do so their ability to evolve
0: is way better than ours and have they, they've been around a lot longer haven't they
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, we're you know, even even humans if you if you take a step back and and look critically at humans, we are probably about half bacteria because you are covered in bacteria,
0: both inside and out. So there's as many bacterial cells as there are human cells in your body. Well, that's interesting. So I was going to say in many ways, they do make up a part of us. We need them in in some ways, don't we?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, they, 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 I mean, they basically colonize your skin and protect Mm -hmm. other things from uh, landing on there and growing and they, help you digest your food and help make some vitamins. So without them, we would be in big trouble.
0: <laughs> right. Nicely said. What a great way to talk about um, and introduce the article that we're uh, going to be using sort of as a, a stepping stone to talk about this 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 need that we now find ourselves in with this fight against uh, superbugs. Mm-hmm. But your article points out the fact that one COVID sort of stepped that up a little bit on behalf of the uh, these superbugs, but also that there's other things at play and and how Canada hasn't been getting the newest and latest drugs to help us uh, fight these superbugs.
1: Right. So, so superbugs is a term that we use for um, common bacterial pathogens that have become resistant to the antibiotics that we would normally use to treat them. Mm -hmm. So we know in Canada that already over 25% of infections, so more than a quarter of infections don't uh, resolve when you give uh, the typical antibiotic treatment. So, you know, we see this with urinary tract infections, for example, right? So one of the most common reasons that adult women go to their family doctor is because of urinary tract infections. And a lot of those are Failing to respond to the antibiotics that you would that you would normally give, and similarly, we see this with uh, kids, right? So kids getting ear infections with bacteria. There's more and more drug resistance happening, and then when you layer COVID on top of that, it's it's become a more serious problem than it was already because people are taking antibiotics sort of on spec to mm-hmm. treat COVID, which is a terrible idea because. COVID is a virus yeah. and viruses do not respond to antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So antibiotics are designed specifically to kill bacteria and they sort of target things that are different in bacteria from humans. And viruses don't respond to those because viruses actually grow inside of our human cells, right? So mm. they're basically using a completely different method to grow than bacteria do.
0: And so I'm am, am I on the right track here when I say that by people taking these drugs, uh, thinking that it might benefit them in, in order to help them with whatever they're feeling. But that only speeds up the process then of these bugs adapting further.
1: Absolutely. So because because there are so many bacteria in the in the world, right, like mm. trillions and trillions and trillions of bacteria and they can grow very quickly. Right. So they can one bacterium can become two bacteria in you know half an hour. And that, you know, if you do the math, that becomes exponential in a very short amount of time. And we've we've learned a lot about exponential math about through talking about COVID mm-hmm. over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Yeah. Um, what you do if you take an antibiotic unnecessarily, you kill all the bacteria that are susceptible to that antibiotic. But in every bacterial population, because they're so huge, you always have a few mutants that are resistant more resistant to the antibiotic than the others right Mm -hmm. so what you're doing then is killing off all the weaker more susceptible bacteria and not killing the resistant ones so then when you stop taking that drug you're left with the resistant population and so they now have less competition because Mm -hmm. you killed all their neighbors and now they take over
0: (laughs) Boy, is it because they've been around so long that they have this ability to adapt so quickly? Oh, absolutely.
1: So one, you know, one of the things I find completely fascinating about being a microbiologist is that, you know, I've learned over my career that bacteria are way more complicated than I originally thought. Mm. So they're, you know, one of the reasons that they're the old, one of the oldest life forms on the planet is because they're capable of adapting, right? And they're Again, their, their populations are so large that you can, you know, kill a massive amount of them, but you can never kill all of them. Mm. And there's always a few survivors who have figured out a way to adapt to whatever conditions you throw at them. Mm. And the way, you know, the way these, these mutants arise is just naturally during, you know, the process of... Uh, making new DNA, there's always mistakes that are made, right? That's mother nature is not perfect. Mm -hmm. And I I almost think that one of the reasons that it's not perfect is because it gives you a selective advantage, right? If you make a few mistakes here and there, you give yourself, you're sort of hedging your bets, right? Mm -hmm. You always have someone in your population who can
0: take advantage of a new situation should Mm -hmm. it arise. Now, bacteria, do they have a brain?
1: They don't have a brain and, you know, they don't have
0: eyes or ears. Right.
1: They right. communicate uh, chemically, okay. right? Okay. So they, and, and antibiotics, this is, this is actually an interesting uh, point. Antibiotics are, a lot of our antibiotics are made by bacteria and fungi. So they are, you can think of them as basically little message packages, right? Mm-hmm. So normally bacteria would be growing, uh, Sort of on a surface, right? And as the as they their colony expands, they might be growing towards another colony of bacteria. So that second colony can tell the first one to stay away by producing antibiotics. And the concentration of antibiotics at the second colony will be really, really high. But as you get closer and like closer to this, the other one and further away from the main colony, they would become less and less in concentration. So, you know, when you mentioned at the beginning when you were introducing me that this is one of the things that we study, we've found out that if you treat bacteria with concentrations of antibiotics that are really, really low, like much lower than is needed to kill them, that actually will stimulate them to make more of this biofilm. And we think that's kind of a, a protective response, right? So it's a defensive response. Because we know biofilms are more resistant to antibiotics. So it helps them as they're growing towards each other. They start to communicate chemically saying, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm approaching another colony. It's making something that might kill me. So I'm going to respond by making more biofilm.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, it, it seems like a form of intelligence. I mean, you say it's chemical, but it's, it seems like a form of intelligence.
1: Yeah, well, and so bacteria in colonies can also communicate, um, I guess, electrically, I would say, right? <laughs> so there's there's been some studies in the last few years that have shown that um, bacterial cells can respond almost like uh, neurons, right? Mm. So we when we mm. get a, a signal from our brain telling mm. us to move our arm, that's all done electrically, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Th- through uh, electrical impulses. And bacteria are also capable of passing electrical impulses from one cell to the next. So the chemical mode of communication is a bit slower, right? Because the the, the molecules need to sort of diffuse through whatever um, environment the bacteria are in, but the electrical communication can be much faster.
0: That is really, really fascinating stuff. I can see why you would would, would would be really interested in studying this stuff. It's fascinating. Boy, just, uh, wow. Great. Thanks so much for all that. You're it, welcome. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth. My guest is Lori Burroughs. She's a professor of... Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University. And we're using the article she has in the conversation entitled, Why Canada Hasn't Been Getting the New Antibiotics We Need to Fight Drug-Resistant Superbugs as sort of a catalyst for our, our conversation here today. And... Uh, Really appreciate Laurie taking the time to join us on the show. Now, we've been talking a lot about the bacteria itself and a little bit about her research and the things that she does. Now, Laurie's article actually does talk and give us some idea about why we're in the situation we're in, why Canada is in the situation it is in. And also, some clues as to what we might need to do to move forward on this. And so, I want to talk to her a little bit more about that. She also was kind enough to forward me an article that uh, she took part in with the Best Brains Exchange meeting. And so, um, I had a, a look at that as well. And, you know, some of the things that you point out in your article for instance is that in 2019 the world health organization declared that antimicrobial resistance was among the top 10 threats of global health that's pretty significant
1: it is pretty significant it's kind of scary actually yeah, yeah. Um, you know we haven't we if you if you think about the the totality of human history we haven't had antibiotics for very long right so yeah. they were they were sort of discovered in the the early 20th century And they were considered kind of miracle drugs. Mm. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. they're one of the few drugs that we have that can become ineffective due to resistance. Right. So we don't hear about resistance to, you know, to Lipitor or to insulin or other, you know, these chronic disease drugs. Um, So antibiotics are a unique class. Right. And we depend on them for so many other things, right? So if you think about our medical system, we take for granted that we can do really invasive procedures without getting infections because we have antibiotics, right? So Mm -hmm. think about knee and hip replacements and heart transplants, lung transplants, uh, chemotherapy for cancer, looking after premature babies, like all of these pretty significant medical procedures require that we have antibiotics.
0: Mm. Now pharmaceutical companies and the model that is set up a, a an independent or or a uh, a business is that the same everywhere is is that the same like how is that structure set up because if nobody's doing this then yeah we're going to fall into this option if we don't have these new drugs and and people working on them to develop and adapt uh so that we can resist these super bugs
1: right so you know i i i don't want to paint the pharmaceutical industry as the bad guy here right Right. so they they are genuinely willing to develop things to for to help humans right Mm -hmm. because that's that's their their job But they're also a business, right? So you cannot spend, you know, $3 billion on a clinical trial to get a drug approved and then turn around and sell, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of that drug per year because there's no return on your investment there. And that's what's starting to happen with antibiotics. So because the larger pharmaceutical companies stopped wanting to do this, sort of medium-sized and you know biotech companies stepped into that uh, vacuum and started working on antibiotics and sometimes these were um, you know divisions that had been spun off of the larger companies or they were startup companies coming out of um, academic centers mm. and unfortunately those even the companies that have managed to get all the way to FDA approval for their drug, they have either, gone bankrupt or been bought out because they just could not make enough money on the new drug. And, you know, the reason for that is because, you know, it's a bit of a catch 22, because when we have a new antibiotic, that's really good. Doctors don't want to use it unless it's absolutely necessary so that they don't encourage resistance from developing. So Mm -hmm. if you don't (laughs) use the drug, you don't sell it.
0: Right. Right. Right.
1: So it's it's a real it's a real problem, right? So we're we're trying to encourage people to think of antibiotics as fire extinguishers. Hmm. Right. So this this analogy came from Dr. John Rex, who's a, a physician in Texas mm-hmm. who specializes in studying antibiotic resistance. And you know, if you think of antibiotics as a fire extinguisher, that I think that's a much better mental picture because Mm -hmm. you know all of us have fire extinguishers around Mm -hmm. but you don't want to use them unless you absolutely have to and you hope you never have to use them right but we're happy to pay for them right to have them there just in case
0: right well, that leads into a couple of things that the way the system is set up and how governments can help with these pharmaceutical companies by giving them a base, uh, base level of money so they can have an operation. Um, but also, I guess what you just said about the fire extinguishers, that, does that kind of lead into the idea of the stewardship thing that you were talking about? And Right.
1: So, yeah. yeah. So, stewardship is just the, you know, the prudent use of, of the drugs that we have.
0: Mm hmm. Yes. And and of course that's one way to try and and mitigate the, the the development of the superbugs, is that right?
1: Right. Yeah. Right.
0: Okay. But now moving forward and looking at Canada and because you mentioned some of the other countries that are that are doing things um and some of the new drugs that have been introduced, you know, I, I think you said the United States has introduced 17 new antibiotics. Um right. the United Kingdom uh, Sweden have also introduced some over the same period of time, but Canada has only introduced a couple. W- what's what's that all about?
1: Right. So, so over the last ten years, um, there have been eighteen new antibiotics approved, in the FDA, and seventeen of those were commercially launched in the United States. Um, out of fourteen high-income countries that uh, were. Examined in this recent study by Kevin Otterson and his uh, group um, at Carbex, which is a, an antibiotic development incubator, Canada was was last out of the 14 countries when it came to actually approving and launching new antibiotics commercially. Mm. So we only launched two of those in Canada. Right. So, you know, that's pretty, uh, pretty pathetic number out of the 18 that were approved. Mm. So, you know, there's multiple reasons for that. Um, Some of them, some of those new drugs are very similar to things we already have. So they're, you know, they're maybe a little bit better, but it's incremental. Um, But one of the big reasons is that pharmaceutical companies, uh, global pharmaceutical companies don't see Canada as a very lucrative market. So. You know, they have to do the math on, you know, what is it going to cost us to go through the process of approval at Health Canada? And that can be, you know, in the neighborhood of $400,000 just for one Mm. drug to get it approved. That means that they have to, you know, recoup that cost. And they look at the market in Canada as being relatively small. Our population isn't big. Mm -hmm. And we have publicly funded healthcare, which puts restrictions on what kind of uh, money they can charge for their mm. antibiotics. Right? The U.S. doesn't have that same uh, level of restrictions, mm. so it's a little more lucrative to launch drugs in the United States because you can charge more. Mm-hmm. Whereas Canada puts uh, puts restrictions in place on what you're allowed to charge. So you know, this is why. We don't think it's a great idea to, to think of antibiotics as, you know, you you approve it and then you're going to make your money back on the volume of sales mm. that you're going to get because mm. that's just not going to happen. Right. We have to go back to that fire extinguisher analogy mm-hmm. and say, you know, we want to make sure that we have these things available, but we don't actually want to use them unless we have to. Right. So how do we how do you pay for something like that. And that's where this idea of incentives comes in, right? right? And I don't want people to think, you know, oh, what do you mean you're going to give pharmaceutical companies incentives? That's crazy talk, right? <laughs> but otherwise, there we don't we won't have access to these drugs, right? So the government kind of went down this route with COVID, and I think that is a really good precedent, right? So the government Uh, in the U S and Canada said to the companies that were developing COVID vaccines and COVID drugs, you know what? We promise that we will buy, you know, Mm. X millions of doses Mm -hmm. of your product if you make it. Right. And that way the company says, okay, you know, now I feel like it's okay to take the risk on developing this because I know I'm going to get some money back. At the end of the day.
0: Uh, given that we've now been through COVID um, and some lessons, as you point out, that have been learned from this and the way the government has, uh, both Canada and the United States, have, have talked to the pharmaceutical companies. Do you think that now, looking forward, there may be some changes or do you think Canada is going to look at its, at, at how it administers these things and how the provincial system and the federal system need to work better together or, or come up with something that is going to allow for the, the speedier and more smooth process of, of getting new Antibiotics into the system,
1: right? So this is one of the things that we we proposed um, in our in our um, report to the government after looking at this problem was to consider um, incentives, right? And mm-hmm. and this can be as simple as as a type of guaranteed revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what we what we did for COVID, mm-hmm. and countries like Sweden are already trying this out, right? Um we, we propose that they think about <clears throat> excuse me, piloting this idea in a single province or even in a single area of a province. And in Ontario, um the federal government gives the Ontario government money, a health transfer, and that money is then distributed to hospitals and jurisdictions in Ontario. So you could Potentially, for example, carve off uh, a little bit of that funding envelope specifically for new antibiotics Mm. and and have that money set aside so that it's not eaten up by other things. Mm. Um, Because one of the things that we heard when we talked to, you know, hospital pharmacists and infectious disease doctors who are who are really the ones that are dealing with these superbugs, right, because they Mm -hmm. tend to be more um, associated with hospital-acquired infections. Right. One of the things we heard from them is that you know, it's it can be really difficult to get antibiotics, not only for the reasons that we talked about, you know, that they're 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 not approved in Canada and whatnot, but even the ones that are approved in Canada, they have to get uh, approval from their administration at the hospital to buy those things because they come out of the hospital budget. So they, there's a lot of uh, red tape and paperwork involved in them trying to just get their hands, even on an- new antibiotics that are approved in Canada, because they cost more money, mm, right? So mm-hmm. they're, the hospital budget uh, dictates that they should try to use the cheaper stuff first,
0: mm.
1: which tends to be the older stuff and right. maybe not the most effective stuff.
0: Right. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Lori. we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show and and talk about this and try to spread the word about some of these issues that we are facing around uh, these resistant superbugs and the issues that we're going to have to contend with looking at the future. Uh, Really appreciate it. Thank you once again for joining me on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. You take care. That is Lori Burroughs. She is a professor of biochemistry and biomedical services at McMaster University. And it's been a pleasure having her on the show using her article that she uh, authored in the conversation, Why Canada Hasn't Been Getting the New Antibiotics We Need to Fight Drug-Resistant Superbugs, as our catalyst for our conversation with her today. That's this portion of Moment of Truth. Please don't go away. We'll be right back with more right after these short messages. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. and It is a pleasure to welcome to the show. I have Elisa Beretsky. She is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Queen's University to talk about an article that she authored in the conversation it is entitled polarization is affecting mental health and patients want therapists who share their views and she joined the department of psychiatry at queen's university in 2019 as a full professor so welcome to the show
2: Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't mind if you could tell me a little bit about your career and where it started.
2: Yeah, sure. So I am a psychiatrist. I, practices, I practiced for several years in Brazil, hmm. both as a clinical psychiatry and as a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have credentials uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy. So I used to see patients for both modalities of treatment, both for like medication, but also for psychotherapy. Mm. I moved to Canada four years ago, and now uh, I work as a, prof- a professor and researcher at Queen's and also as as an attending psychiatrist of Kingston General Hospital.
0: Mm. Well, welcome to Canada. And I'm just wondering, is there a difference that you have noticed in either the language and or the way Countries approach this kind of work. Uh,
2: there is some some uh, some issues related to language, but mm. not only to language in the way that people communicate their mm. feelings. Mm. But uh, in in a place like Canada, which is like I, I am in Kingston, but especially in big cities, which are like multicultural cities, we are trained to interact with patients from different backgrounds mm-hmm. and. Part of our training includes to understand and to deal with cultural and ethnic background and uh, cultural values and to help us to to address the needs of, of people from different backgrounds. So Brazil is not different mm-hmm. in this in this aspect. And something that both countries have in common at this moment, this specific moment is that both of them are in a moment of political polarization. I think Mm. both countries are talking a lot about politics. Uh, It started to happen in North America, especially with uh, Trump's election, (laughs) but also in Brazil. And we are also seeing this in Canada uh, when we started to discuss things like COVID or like the freedom convoy and now, you know, Ukraine war so politics mm-hmm. is kind of everywhere and mm-hmm. everyone is talking about this so it was just a matter of time that you know to, to start to to uh, see these issues arriving in our offices and being brought by patients as important topics for discussion <sighs>
0: I'm just wondering if there was a specific time that you can remember how long ago this, this started to build. You mentioned a lot of them. You mentioned Trump. You mentioned COVID, vaccines, Black Lives Matter is in your article as well. Then the American election. And now, of course, the Ukraine and what's going on there with Russia. Is there something or do you, do you see that build up as well?
2: Yeah, I, I see that this was this is part of the context that we and our patients are So, it's natural that people talk about this, Mm. especially in moments in which the political climate is a bit more heated. But the thing is that traditionally, psychiatry and also psychotherapy was not very concerned about these topics as something to be studied, something Mm. to be investigated and you know, something to be object of research projects and elaboration on this. So when I started to see this, you know, coming, when I started to see patients talking, for example, about uh, having fights over social media with mm-hmm. people that they, they, they don't even know who were <laughs> or uh, having problems with like a partner for not sharing their views or, or having disagreements at work, I started to take a look in the literature, and I found this being more heavily like described uh, since the Trump election. Mm-hmm. And we know that most of the medical literature uh, come from US today. Mm-hmm. Um, other countries contribute a lot, but the country who that isolately is the top publisher is is US. So things became more systematically investigated, I would say, from 2016 uh, up to now. Uh, But of course, this has been there for like like a long time. This is not the first time in our history that we are in the middle of a war or in Mm -hmm. the middle of a conflict Mm -hmm. or that we are crossing like uh, political or health crisis. This has been there for a long time. Uh, but what is happening now is that researchers are kind of deciding to better investigate the situation. Mm. So, for example, something that is new is the idea that there is a concept, called it political stress. Mm. So, uh, some psychologists and researchers are starting to describe like a specific situation that happen with people who have like a heavy involvement with politics. And we are not just talking about partisan politics. We can even talk about people who are activists or who are like heavily involved with with political um, activity. So is the idea that if you were there every day, if you were reading everything, if you were receiving lots of hate and it happens, especially uh, if you are present in social media, uh, people who are deeply involved in this topic, they have a higher risk to present things like depression, anxiety, sleep problems, and also general medical problems. So perhaps it's time to pay attention in the political stress in the same way that we pay attention to any chronic stress, like workplace burnout, mm. or like you know uh, other situations which are more like traditional recognize it as being linked to mental health issues.
0: Hmm. Does this because of the way you're describing this and and the idea that patients want therapists who share their views. It feels like there's a uh, there's a either a, a threat or a, a lack of trust or a, a safety area that people want to have and they're they're really unsure to even have a general conversation Uh, with someone because of what it might bring up and and the polarities that are out there.
2: Yeah. I would say that first of all, it's important for us to know that everyone is different. And Mm -hmm. the fact that some studies are showing that some patients actually uh, refer that they have stronger therapeutic alliances with therapists that they think that share their views does not mean that this is going to be true for everyone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every therapist is different. Every patient is different, and every process is different too. But the results of the studies that we have, and the best study was conducted in U.S. and uh, during the process of Trump's election. And what this group of researchers from New York described was that uh, two third of patients in psychotherapy talked about politics with their therapists. Mm. And 50%, half of them, wanted to talk even more. Hmm. We are not saying that people are saying, okay, I'm not going to talk about my personal issues because right. I want to talk about the general topic, like right. politics. Right? It's not like this, you know? This study specifically investigated what the patients were talking about. And they were talking about, for example, about uh, difficulties in dating people, who did not share their views, for example, or uh, problems about having discussions over politics at the Christmas dinner, or uh, having the perception that a political uh, view kind of shape, you know, the individual. So this is something that we are seeing, you know. People think, oh, if someone is an ultra-conservative, so this person is a racist which is not exactly true but you know this moment of polarization is making people like assume more extreme and more monolithic views of of people and and this has been a problem because it creates a, a you know a climate of animosity that in the end of the day is going to be discussed in psychotherapy so i think it's important to because sometimes when people read this 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 article I wrote, say, oh, but why people are talking about a general topic like politics? You know, I wouldn't pay a psychotherapist to talk about politics. (laughs) But we are, yeah, we are basically, what people are talking is about the repercussions of Mm. this political moment in their lives.
0: Like you're saying in uh, your article that uh, politics is a source of significant anxiety, insomnia, and even suicidal thoughts. That's uh, that's quite profound
2: yeah so and this was so important that the American Psychological Association decided to sponsor a study and in the same moment in the in the, the Trump's election uh, to specifically investigate this topic unfortunately this the results of this study were never formally published yet so we have some data of this research but we don't have all the data and mm. what we see is that for some people, um, these things can be like a heavy impact. Exactly these people who are like young, more heavily involved mm-hmm. in politics
1: mm-hmm.
2: and who spend more time, for example, scrolling the news and paying attention in what was happening. So these are the people um, who said that they had more symptoms. And we are Uh, also talking about people who obviously are in opposition of the government. So for this subgroup of people, uh, political stress can be especially heavy.
0: Mm. Makes me wonder what's going on uh, in discussions at university and in in classes at university, (laughs) you know, that are discussing these kind of things. I hope nobody's getting into fisticuffs, you know, uh, (laughs) in their debates. (laughs) Not, li- yet. <laughs> Not yet. Not <laughs> yet. You're listening to Element FM and this is a Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Elisa Brietsky and she's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Queen's University and it's a pleasure to have her here talking about and uh, around an article that she authored in the conversation Political Polarization is Affecting Mental Health and Patients Want Therapists Who Share Their Views and that's uh, where we're taking this conversation. You know, as you were talking there, I wrote down something about what is going on two things come to mind because i have had other conversations around social media and around what's been happening you know with the the trucker demonstrations happening in and around canada social media has played it seems like a big role in this division that we seem to be uh, faced with as well is that fair to say
2: yes i think it is david you know there's a lot of discussions that you probably know about the algorithms mm-hmm. uh, from social social media like Twitter or Instagram mm-hmm. kind of amplifying the more extreme views. Yeah. So we have studies showing that posts with more extreme views they receive more likes, they are more shared. So uh, social media uh, has an important role in amplifying this uh, polarization. Mm. And also with COVID, people are spending, and we have data showing this too, people are spending more time on on internet in general. Mm -hmm. You know, they're spending more time online in basically everything. So Mm -hmm. from porn to dating apps, to social media, to politics, to information about COVID, to everything. And, you know, being connected all the time and receiving this polarized and more extreme views uh, certainly does not contribute to reduce this climate of animosity and polarization.
0: It seems that in general, what we're being faced with, with everything we're talking about and what we're seeing, is generally less tolerance for each other.
2: Yes, I think so. And and one of, of the situations, especially when we talk about um, communication, because, you know, Uh, treatment in psychotherapy or even in psychiatry relies a lot into communication people are kind of becoming to be isolated in bubbles Mm. you know so uh, i just talk with people who think about me i just receive information on social media from people who share my views you know my netflix algorithm also shows me what i like So with the time people are kind of uh, living in this in these bubbles and part of our tasks uh, as as therapists and someone who is worried about mental health is to help people to talk with those who do not share their their views. Mm. And we have studies, you know, from different researchers, for example, trying to improve communication between pro-life and pro-choice people, we have things that have been around for a long time. You know, we are talking about 10 to 15 years, but especially in this moment, perhaps it's time to help to psychiatrists and and psychotherapists to incorporate uh, this strategy in their training. Because one of the points of the article uh, that I wrote for the conversation is that we were not exposed to this, uh, this situation during our training. Mm. So we talk a lot about, like, you know, psychosocial factors and biological factors happening, you know, at the same time, combine it to produce a mental uh, disorders or mental suffering. But, you know, consi- consi- to consider that political environment is part of this bio-psychosocial model is something that do not receive, you know, the necessary investment in terms of training. Hmm. And we should be aware that as therapists and as psychiatrists, we also have our own views. Sure. We also have our own thoughts about the situation. And we need to to be helped sometimes to connect even with people who have very extreme like views, and even with people that do not share at all our view of the world. And sometimes we are going to disagree in very important topics. So this should be part of our training too.
0: It, it sounds like we seem to be less tolerant for hearing other people's opinion or taking another, pe- another person's viewpoint.
2: Yeah, I think this is something that has always been there. We always had like groups inside a society who had like extreme views, Mm. and again, there is like a whole line of research. For example, in uh, prevention of radicalization and prevention of terrorism, for example, we have this uh, well established. But what we are seeing now is that people are starting to see political views as something strongly rooted at people's characters and personalities. So uh, there is an interesting study from uh, an institute called Public Religion Research Institute in the U.S. also investigate people during the election. So they saw that people who self-identify as Republicans and strongly self-identify as Republicans, 80% of them believe that Democrats were communists. Communists, which was not true. Mm. And 80% of, of the of the Democrats thought the Republicans were racist, which mm. was not true, obviously not true.
1: Mm.
2: So I think this is something relatively new, is this hyper generalization about mm. someone character about someone personality? And this is certainly amplified by social media. And when we talk about social media, we also need uh, you know. Know that some people are even making money in in promoting like more extreme uh, discourses over social media. So when we talk about like you know extreme anti-vax groups, sometimes we are talking about people who are making money, you know, sure, uh, sure. with this kind of activity. And and this is one of the reasons why there is not an easy solution. You know, when we are talking about. Uh, reducing this kind of polarization, probably we will need actions in multiple levels.
0: From what you're saying and from what you were saying earlier, uh, one of the things I wrote down, it sounds like the therapists need to uh, get some therapy perhaps as well. So you were talking about training, but I thought it sounds like that you guys need a place to go and talk to people as well.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I strongly recommend I do therapy myself. As a patient, and I also strongly recommend to my residents and to my trainees that they have a place to vent and to treat their own issues. Because if our head is not nice, if we are not psychologically stable, we won't be good therapists. So, for sure, you know, several times in several moments of our lives, we need therapists, therapy ourselves.
0: Mm you were mentioning this hyper generalization that's going on. And we talked about social media. And the one thing that I keep thinking about is that no one is forcing us to look at social media. We're doing it to ourselves.
2: We are, we are doing, but you know, there are things that became a habit. Mm-hmm. So for example, today there's a lot of people who don't read like newspapers anymore, or even don't check yep. like traditional media. Mm-hmm. So they receive information basically through social social media. So people say at Twitter, oh, I saw something, a nice article. So they go there and they check and they inform themselves basically, basically due to social media. So I agree with you. Part of this is related to choice, but we also should take into consideration that every time we post something, And someone likes and someone shares this. Mm. There is a process in our brain that kind of like this, Mm. this things, Sure. You know, there is a little bit of pleasure in being heard, you know, because everyone wants to be heard. Everyone wants someone saying, oh, I agree with your idea. Yeah. I think you are a smart guy. So this type of mechanisms, it kind of reinforces our connection to social media. So, I would say that there is a component which is related to choice, but there is another component which is very close to an addiction. Mm. So, it's very easy for some people to become addicted to mm. this mechanism, uh, most of the time not to a level in which we are going to have impairment in our lives, but it certainly becomes an, a habit, you know, yeah. something yeah. that we do every day. For a lot of people, this is the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is to check sure. our Instagram and to check our Twitter, to see if something happened while, while we were sleeping mm-hmm. and some people even sleep less because they keep, you know, checking all the time.
0: Yeah.
2: And, and this happens because social media kind of match to a part of our brain who is activated by these kind of mechanisms like likes and shares and comments in our, in our content.
0: So in terms of the health impacts of this polarized thinking in politics that we're seeing, that you're seeing coming up more and more in therapy with people, do you see this as something that is going to continue to grow and is going to continue to increase?
2: I don't see this will be gone very soon. Mm. You know, it's hard to say, you know, for how long this will be, this will be here, but I don't think this going like this being solved very soon. I think it's something that we are going to live with Mm. Uh, because COVID will still be here. We need to deal with COVID for a bit more. We are starting a war. You know, we are seeing the beginning of a war. So this kind of things will be here for a while. Uh, What I believe is going to happen is that we are going to develop better instruments to identify political stress we are going to adapt the interventions that we have for other models of chronic stress to political stress, and we certainly should uh, advocate for a more responsible use of social media. Right. In multiple levels, you know, from the personal level. For example, I used to say to my patients, "If you were you were checking a content in social media, and w- after you feel worse than before checking." Perhaps it's time to unfollow that profile or to unfollow that person.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure.
2: So this is under control, right? But there is also like things like regulation of uh, of uh, the plat- social media platforms and mm-hmm. social media content that also can help. Yeah. So as I th- as I as I mentioned to you, I I see this solution coming from multiple sources.
0: Hmm. Well, let's do hope that it does uh, come to a resolution of sorts uh, in the near future and that we can get back to i you know i guess we're not going to get back to anything that we may have known as normal because it all seems so far away
2: but we are learning we are learning mm. how to deal with this mm. right. and so i hope that and we are already doing this i think we are we are learning how to cope and how to help our patients cope with this we are adapting the strategies that we know from other stressful events that we had in the past. Uh, we are having data or producing data. So I I think if the situation will be solved very soon, at least our strategies will going to be better.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there, but it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the show and and share your views and and certainly talk about your article that people can go to The Conversation and uh, read it for themselves. It is entitled, Political Polarization is Affecting Mental Health and Patients Want Therapists Who Share Their Views. And as I say, you can find that in uh, theconversation.ca and it is an article by my guest here today on the show, Elise Britsky. Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Queen's University. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me, David. It was a pleasure.
0: And that is Moment of Truth for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.